This is what me and Matt do. We take five minutes to talk about what we're going to talk about, and then we don't talk about any of it. So yeah. however it works out, it works out. We're good. <laughs> well, if hanging out and drinking is something that you want to do, well, let me introduce you to my boys, Matt and Drew. For fun and laughs and spirits, there's just one place to go. It's time for the Whiskey Tequila Friday Show. Whiskey Tequila Friday Show with my boys, Matt and Drew. Happy Friday, Drew. Happy Friday, Matt. And happy Friday to everybody, and welcome to another Zoomtastic episode of Whiskey Tequila Fridays, our podcast where we Drink some whiskey. We drink some tequila. We educate. And we libate. All right. Once again, we are on the airways through the Zoom screen because we have a really exciting episode for you. Let me just get my quick intro here. My name is Matt. I'm the uncertified whiskey hunter. And with me, as always, my special spirit spitfire, Drew. How are you today? I'm excited for this one, Matt. This is good. This is going to be a really interesting topic here. We have got a tequila group and a whiskey group. Drew, why don't you introduce our guest today? We filled up the Zoom room here. We've got Mike from the Great Lakes Tequila Club and Jason from the Wheaton Whiskey Club. Both clubs have been mentioned often in the podcast, so I'm really excited to have these two, the two founders of the groups with us here today. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's awesome. Thank you. Thanks for making the time, guys. Let's just get into it. Uh, here's what I want to know from, from each of you. Jason, why whiskey? What brought you down the whiskey rabbit hole? And Mike, for you, right? Why tequila? What drew you guys to these spirits? Um, well, for me, you know, it started about 26 years ago. Um, I have an uncle that uh, I, I have a very, I'm very fond of that was into single malt scotch. Um, he was an Isla guy. Um, I kind of went to one extreme very early on in my life. If you're familiar with uh, peated whiskeys, it's uh, some people call it, especially a certain brand called the Freud liquid ashtray. You, once you get past that <laughs> dump and, and get into the subtleties of the spirit, you can really find some real dramatic flavors. And I just kind of went with it and it just kind of grew on me until I had some really bad acid reflux. So I gave up whiskey for about two or three years until I figured out how to manage it. And then got back into it, and I haven't looked back. Thank God you figured out how to work out that reflux. <laughs> yeah, a lot right. of water. <laughs> the key is water. Yeah, where would we be Excellent. if he never got that figured out? Yeah. I know, right? <laughs> so this is, this is so interesting because Matt also has an uncle that reminds him a lot of whiskey experience. So did your uncle keep packets of marmalade in his smoking jacket? <laughs> no. He was just a character. I didn't <laughs> no uh, no marmalade packets in his smoke. Yeah, Matt's That's got weird. a creepy uncle. I don't know. I, I keep bringing this up. I keep bringing this up. To, yeah, Matt's Drew, gonna... Drew likes to make him creepy. I don't know where that came from. But um, yeah, no. so no offense to your uncle that I'm sure you're fond of. I don't really have an uncle, but I had a tasting <laughs> note. I, I had a tasting note was an uncle that had a smoking jacket, and inside the jacket was orange marmalade. Because you had that leather and that orange, and yeah, Drew just won't let it oh, go. I love tasting uh, notes. <laughs> I love your tasting notes, man. They're always out there. The tasting note thing, when I first started, the to, not to jump ahead, but I used to really kind of get into the tasting notes when I first started doing the podcast. And then the more I got drinking, and I was like, okay, I do taste the stuff, but I just got to the point where I, I don't know, I just got really lazy. I think is what it really boils down to. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, I think if you're drinking work. Yeah, if you're just with <laughs> right. friends, you should just be talking about what you like and what you don't like. Absolutely. I agree 100%. But it's hard but, to sell without the descriptors. That's the key. <laughs> yeah. So, Mike, give us your story. How did you get into tequila? Yeah, I didn't get into tequila. Tequila got into me. Um, <laughs> it found it found me. Um, so, I mean, I had the same experience that I think a lot of people had early on, You know, whether it's college or whatever. Um, bad experiences with tequila. Um, and that's because, as you guys know, there are different 
qualities and classes of tequila and the stuff we all probably got introduced to is in the worst sewer of Dante's Inferno. And so, um, <laughs> yes, I have that, those. That, you mean Senior Frogs Cancun? Oh, I've been to Senior Frogs, all of it. Um, and so, yeah, you know, all of those bad experiences I had for sure. I, I actually, in Cancun, um, funny you should mention that, uh, I remember asking for the good stuff, even, you know, early on in, in those college days. And they brought me something that wound up being Porfidio, if you've ever heard of that, which is a very innovative tequila, very controversial one. And it had this, uh, you know, cactus inside and all of that. I remember paying $10 for a glass back in the 90s and thinking, this is insane. You know, $10 in Mexico for a glass. <laughs> right. That was actually the first time that I had what was quote unquote good tequila and we just shot it slow i guess that you would say back in the uh, <laughs> back in the day but really what introduced me to uh, getting back into or getting into tequila like i am today was probably about 7 years ago or so uh, I was at a friend's house, um, actually a co-worker's house. Uh, was having a, a, a work event, and he had a basement bar. And we were all, there's probably 30 of us down there or something in his basement bar. And he was really into tequila and was, you know, starting to educate me on it. I'd had tequila over the years, but not like he was talking through. And he just had so much passion for it. It really came out that passion for quality tequila and how I explored this world. Like, you know, I'd never go back. And I remember distinctly he had about 40 different bottles of tequila, and I thought that was just insane, insane. And now, uh, you know, I look around my house and it's, I don't know what beyond insane is, but it's, it's yeah. definitely beyond that <laughs> one, 40 that I thought. Yeah. So one, one room has 40. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that was really my reintroduction to, uh, or, or my proper introduction to quality tequila. And I've stayed close with him. Uh, his name's Nick and he, he, he kind of ushered in that new era for me. And even that, I still had things that I didn't know what really good quality was. Uh, there were still a lot of things with additives and so forth, um, you know, seven years ago. And then I started my um, my journey, which just meant experimenting and drinking and, and education, uh, really a lot of education, and then connecting with other people. And, and it's kind of the tide that lifts all, you know, uh, all boats. So we've we've uh, engaged in a community that kind of has helped educate and lift up all of us, I'd say. And so, you know, now I'm a full on tequila geek for sure. Well, speaking of the community, talk about founding the Great Lakes Tequila Club. What made you decide to take it that extra step and bring in friends and strangers alike? I just enjoy tequila so much. And a few years ago, there wasn't quite as many accounts on social media and so forth and, and, and groups. And this was around the start of COVID. I thought, you know, I had some time on my hands and I thought, let's take this, my passion for tequila to kind of a hobby level. I had the time to do so. And I thought, geez, it would be great to do a tequila club where we got together in person and we did community building and in-person events and tastings and sharings and all of the bottle swaps and all of these things. But it was COVID. And I'm like, all right, well, this will be over in two weeks, right? Yeah. Uh, and so <laughs> as that dragged, you know, this idea. Yeah, good, kind of, good thinking. <laughs> yeah. Um, so two weeks became four weeks, became, you know, three years. But as that was dragging on, I was thinking to myself, you know, I really can't do this in-person thing. We we can't leave the house. Like this was, you know, early days, if if you'll remember, were um, you know, were were kind of frightening. And so so I said, you know what, let's still do it. Let's create the club, but we're gonna have to execute it a little bit differently, deliver it differently. Uh and so I started on Instagram with a public account and a, what I'll call now my, our, our global network. And I started there because I had to, nobody would leave their house or do anything in person. And a couple of years later, I finally wound up getting to the local concept that I always wanted, which is our Chicago Facebook group. It, it was really just a mission to connect tequila drinkers from beginner to connoisseur. And that started about a year and a half ago. 
That's great. And Jason, I don't want to answer for you, but your startup ideas were a little bit different with the Wheaton Whiskey Club. Am I right? Yeah, it was really more about just getting people together to, to support barrel picks and, and kind of build within the community a little bit as well, bringing the, the whiskey connoisseurs and Wheaton together. But I was also trying to bring a bunch of people together to support single barrel picks because I thought that single barrel picks was going to be a fun way to bring people together. And also help support local establishments, but we're slowing down the picks a little bit. Because I think what's happened is because of COVID, especially in the bourbon world, I know tequila is kind of starting to, to pick up now, um, but bourbon just went hog wild during COVID. And I've been reading a few articles now recently where it seems like there's a little bit of a bourbon burnout where everybody was just, they had expendable income because they were sitting at home, they weren't going out. So they were just going to the liquor store and buying a new bourbon, buying a new bourbon, buying a new bourbon. And then you end up like me where you have 250, 300 bottles sitting in your house. You've got all the bourbons that you've been looking for. So now what? <laughs> you know what I mean, it's been kind of a rush to get all of this cool stuff because you keep hearing about all the Buffalo Trace products. You hear about all of these fancy bourbons and everyone else is going hog wild too. So it was kind of a networking thing. You're trying to help people find stuff, trying to help people get, you know, that, that, that unicorn that they're looking for. And meanwhile, also mixing in maybe a um, a hard to find bourbon from a distillery that they're really into. But that community aspect of it is is what was important to me when I when I started the Wheaton Whiskey Club to kind of just bring people from Wheaton from the surrounding area together. Kind of like Mike, like you said, with just keeping it in the Chicagoland area, I was trying to keep it in the kind of DuPage area. And then I just kept letting people in because I was trying to support bottle picks. Single barrels are unique in a number of ways. Right. Not only is it the, the barrel, obviously the barrel is unique and you can have variances from one barrel to the next in the very same rickhouse. The downside is that you can't recreate it. Gosh, it sure would be nice to be able to repeat that, right? <laughs> and you can't, you can't do it with single so barrels. So much variance. Yes. It's, it's, that's been the fun part for me, and I've been lucky enough to have you along on a, on a few of those picks as well, where we get to learn about those variances and, and go through that. And you do learn a lot about bourbon real quick when it comes to that. Uh, the goal was always to kind of maybe one day to get out to to um, to Scotland and pick a, uh, a scotch barrel. But a small enough barrel can sometimes be a challenge, especially if you don't have a lot of scotch drinkers in your whiskey club and everyone's still kind of dabbling in bourbon and um, the other caveat to picking a barrel on bourbon is that they can they can get pricey, right? And sometimes you price people out in the respect that they're afraid to spend $80 on a, what is a really great bottle of whiskey, but they're really big fans of Buffalo Trace and they're really big fans of Elijah Craig or something else that's just common on the shelf or it's some sort of tater bottle or Blanton's and they want to have everything's got to be Blanton's and they don't want to spend $80 on a barrel craft spirits because they don't know anything about it. So trying to educate them in that is really kind of what the whiskey club now is, you know, trying to be is more of an education piece. You know, we have to kind of ramp that up. Jason, for people who are a little newer and don't understand a barrel pick and what you're going through there, take us through that process. What is a barrel pick? And then what are you on the hook for on the back end? Well, if you have a good agreement with a store like we did, you're really not on the hook for anything, thankfully, other than a reputation and a good partnership, maybe <laughs> an invitation back, perhaps. What happens is, is um, for example, when we did our A1 pick, um, the, the, the liquor, you have to go through a three-tier system when you do a barrel pick. So you can't just, I can't just walk into someplace like Heaven Hill or like Buffalo Trace and say, hey, I want to buy a barrel. You have to go through a liquor store to do that. And what they'll do is they'll coordinate with the with the distillery. What will happen is they'll arrange for anywhere from three barrels to eight barrels. And what will happen is that they'll thief out some whiskey from that barrel. You and your group will sit down at a table. You'll have your samples in front of you. And then you'll talk about it. And then you'll kind of come to a consensus and decide which one you think is going to work. I always went by the, the mentality of, what's good but what'll sell and other some people will go by what's really great and who cares and then you get that consensus you build on that consensus and you come up to a decision and then you say that's the barrel we want and then what'll happen is then it'll go through the process of being you know dumped and bottled and that could be the killer as far as time there's nothing fast about whiskey so it goes through the process which could take anywhere from two to four months or longer depending on the distillery and then you'll get a bottle count 
So not every barrel, you know, as you guys know, will yield the same amount. Uh, most bourbon barrels will yield anywhere from in a four-year range, roughly about 250 bottles. You get into the more aged whiskeys, um, like our Elijah Craig pick was about 160. We had a Charleston pick that we did that was like only 100 bottles because it had so much angel share out of it. So it just varies. So what, what when you ask what you're on the hook for, the hope is for like most of these liquor stores is that you try to sell as much as possible. So he has less to worry about. Um, in the case of like our last Stellan pick, which was, you know, a Perseus, which was really, really good, I thought. The club only sold like 40 or 50 bottles. And so that it it just becomes inventory for a liquor store. That's kind of what you run into is now you've got a burden on a liquor store, especially who's going gangbusters with his own picks. It's just reputation more than anything else, you know, or your relationship that could get strained. But it's a really fun process, um, especially when you get to go to the distillery. You get treated a little bit like a VIP. Um, you get to you get the kind of same tour, but you get a little more in depth with it when you go. But it's that sitting down and choosing a barrel and finding and just tasting all those unique things. And each distillery kind of does it a little different, even though they're all kind of the same process, how they warehouse it and all that stuff. It's just it's a really cool experience. And that's been the most rewarding part is saying is choosing this thing and then selling it to the members and getting their feedback and, and them loving it. And then they're you know, you get. We do have a core group of people in the club. There's about 50 of them that have gotten every single one and have loved every single one. That's been the most rewarding part of the whole thing. We have 1,300 members, but you see action from probably 300 of them at this at any given time. But the fact that we've had a lot of great feedback um, with the different picks has been has been really rewarding. And I'm looking forward to hopefully getting a Sazerac pick in uh, this year, them everyone trying it, because it's going to be pretty awesome, too. But it'll be our first Buffalo Trace product pick, so I'm excited about that. Also, yeah. your question. Yeah, Drew and, and Mike, I'll, I'll add, the, the one thing that I learned while going on those picks is that you're not really arguing about the whiskey, Usually, <laughs> yeah. usually in a in a in four samples of whiskey, one is always flat, and everyone yeah. agrees it's flat. And then the other three are so glorious that no one's going to come out a loser here. But what no. you what you end up debating is more about what he alluded to is considering your audience and not just picking what you like. But do we want? a pick that represents the distillery so or do we, or do we want to, you know, try to, you know, ride that lightning and, and, and just be like, this is a complete departure and get out there in front and educate those around you. Yeah. Tequila. Um, you know, when it comes to tequila and single barrel picks, there's a lot of similarities. There's also some differences, um, you know, both just with how the industry does it, but also, um, you know, our clubs in a, in a slightly different spot. So we haven't released or, or done a barrel pick yet. Although I can semi announce that we, um, we actually have, and we have, uh, it just, it's going to be released in probably late August or early September. Um, so one is coming and we have high demand for, for others, both from our club members and, from our liquor stores that we do, you know, that we, that we partner with or that we patron. Right. Uh, and what's a little bit different right now is that tequila is very hot. It's very in vogue and the liquor stores are tilting toward tequila. Uh, a number of them are They're They're riding the, the, the trend, so to speak. And with the great lakes tequila club, you know, I, I took a look around and said, I don't think there's something quite like this in our area, at least not to the magnitude that we've, you know, that we've started the, the momentum that we've started to get with this club. Bourbon was already there, right? Like there is, there was a, a lot of interest in bourbon and a lot of kind of competing interests in bourbon and so forth. And tequila didn't have the same communities built up yet. And so I feel like we struck at a good time. And the result of that is, is that the liquor stores, instead of me going to them, and saying our club wants to do a pick and like, you know, really trying to figure out how we make it so easy on them. They really want us, they want to do a pick and they're thrilled for us to bring people to it. We bring an audience, we bring shoppers. So 
just like what Jason was talking about with, you know, the Wheaton club, we're not on the hook for anything, but I would go a, a step further and say, we're not involved in taking orders. We're not involved in pre-orders. We're not involved in any commitment of any kind. The liquor store is wholly on the hook for both the expense and all of the profit. And they're really looking at that opportunity and we're, the, our club comes in as we say, hey, we're going to make this easy for you because if we're involved in the pick, if we pick it, we're going to promote it. And if we promote it, you're going to have a much easier time moving it than if you did it without us. The problem right now in tequila is that there is a real shortage of aged quality tequila. Mm-hmm. Um, it just spiked. You can get Blancos, but it is very tough to get. It's tougher and tougher to get Añejos and extra Añejos and e- even some Reposados. And so... The distilleries that were doing single barrel picks two, three years ago, it's harder to get them to carve off single barrels out of the distillery now because they can't meet their regular production demand. They can't even come close to it on the age stuff. So then it's the ones that you really don't want that are making themselves available. Uh, so, so that has been the hardest part for us. The liquor stores are, are plentiful. The club members want the picks. Yeah. We want to be involved, but finding good quality tequila, additive-free tequila options at the right price point that would satisfy the members that are very discerning and help the liquor stores, you know, actually move the product is tricky. And if you are a brand uh, or a distributor that is, uh, you know, interested in reaching the Chicago market and wants to talk about single barrel picks, I'm open to talk. Um, but it goes through the three-tier system, it goes through the liquor store, liquor stores on the hook, and we have a very high bar for what we're interested in. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. The, uh, awesome. the, the samples are probably a little bit different because obviously it's, it's a little bit tougher to get down to Mexico. Are they (laughs) sending, are they sending you enough samples that you can have a panel with you or are you the only, is it you and the liquor store owner picking them? They all kind of do it a little bit different. There's big tequila companies and that's not the tequila I like. And then all the tequila that our club members really like, they're mostly smaller family-run distilleries in rural Mexico. And so this, this, this the distillery tours are different. The trips down there are harder. The transportation, all of it is, you know, there's more effort. Um, but you can get down there. You can go do samples down there. I, I'd say there's two different ways. So they're happy to host you for a barrel pick, you know, barrel sampling and tasting down in Mexico. Really the biggest challenge with that, um, aside from all of the stuff you would expect around travel and all and expense, is that the CRT, the regulatory body for tequila, has to be there when a barrel is opened. And uh-huh. so you can't just go distillery to distillery, cracking open barrels and tasting stuff. The regulator has to be there at the unsealing, when you pull out a sample, every time a barrel is opened, regulators there. It is really? challenging. And I've had many friends and liquor store owners that are doing barrel picks and so forth, go down to Mexico at the behest of the brand. And then they can't get a regulator out there. And they essentially, they went to Mexico. They could not sample what they were there to pick. And then it's months go by. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so, um, so what I've, done is I've had the samples come here. Um, They're happy to send the samples. The one that we have coming around the corner, which we haven't announced yet, so I don't mean to be cagey, but uh, the brand, I won't announce the brand here yet, but uh, we had five samples. Mike, listen, this is the show where news breaks, man. This is the show. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, drop it. <laughs> it's uh it, it's 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 going to be a crowd pleaser i'll tell you that um right. but what i what i will what i what i'll say is we had five barrel samples and we had four club members there to do the sampling plus the liquor store owner who actually wasn't feeling well and didn't wind up sampling so we had a very interesting situation where the liquor store owner didn't participate in the in the barrel pick at all because mm. he just wasn't feeling he was not feeling well and so he told us you pick it. He totally outsourced it to us, even though they're on the hook, you know, financially. Um, we had four members and all of us out of the five, five samples, we all had a consensus pick. And so that told me, all right, like, let's move forward with 
um, with great. this one. So I'm excited about That's that. Awesome. That's great. All right. I'm going to be the first one as soon as you announce that. Can't wait. Um, guys, is there anything else you guys wanted to bring up about your club or your process or anything else? The, the secret goal was always to one day come up with like a speakeasy or someplace where you could come and, and buy whiskey and then have a back room where you had all the um, all the fancy stuff. That was always a dream, Drew. But then, <laughs> then COVID ended and the free time went away <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and all the dreams went with it. <laughs> yeah, for, for me, I'd say with, uh, you know, with the Great Lakes Tequila Club, it's been really rewarding because what I get a lot of fulfill, fulfillment out of is the community building and, you know, kind of network building. And, uh, I see a lot of social media, for example, can be used for good. It can be used for evil. And, uh, you know, you see a lot of just negativity out there and, and I try to stay away from it as much as I can and foster, you know, a more positive environment. I think people appreciate that. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see if, if we can maintain that as we get bigger and bigger. Um, you know, it's easy to do when you're, you know, when you're small and now we're kind of, you know, growing and we'll, we'll see if we can maintain that culture, but it extends not just to the, the type of discourse in the, in the, you know, the group chats and so forth and, 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 uh, and all of that, but it's also the brand partners that we work with, the liquor stores that we work with, the distilleries that we, um, associate with, and by that, I just mean, you know, chat with and, and, and help amplify the good work that they're doing. So, uh, it's been important to me, go down to Mexico, forge relationships, um, really get to see how people are producing the spirit that I enjoy and understand all the different levels from the, the farmers, the hemidors, and some of the challenges that they run into, uh, you know, up through the, the distillery owners and then out to the brand owners, forge relationships with those brand owners and really just separate the ones that are BSing you. It's pretty quick that you can start to stratify some of those brand owners that are just um, disconnected from reality and they don't know what is really happening in their, in their juice versus the ones that are um, enthusiasts like me and then wanted to make business out of that. And, and, you know, those are the folks that I like to, I like to hang out with, you know, I mean, I, I give you an example, I'm drinking, um, El Gran Legato de Vida right now. And that was a brand that is, um, it's a newer brand that was launched. I think, um, yeah, it was launched last year out of the Cascoine distillery, which is one of my favorite distilleries. So I knew it had a good DNA and then when I met the brand owner and we started chatting, I sampled this, the juice and I was just like, this is amazing. And so, you know, it hit a couple states. I'm like, you got to bring it to Illinois. You got to bring it to Illinois. And then he's like, all right, let's bring it to Illinois. And part of that was we've got people here to support you coming to our state. Like, come on out here. I'm telling you, this is going to be, this is going to be good. So the owner of El Graham Legato de Vida, um, Steve Vera, when he launched their tequila in Illinois, he flew out and launched it at a Great Lakes Tequila Club event. It wasn't a huge event, right? There's 20-some members there. Um, Steve came out. Most of my events are 20, 30 members, something like that. They're not hundreds of people or, you know, like anything you can't, you can't manage. We did it at a bar. He flew out, made human connections with the club. People love that. They love that stuff. Um, and so... You know, whether it's the brand owners, the distilleries, the the liquor stores, I mean, I'm visible. I'm out there chatting with these folks, and it's just because I enjoy it, and I think it it, it makes a difference. There, there's no financial gain to being in the, uh, to, to leading the Great Lakes Tequila Club. It's a hobby and a passion for me, and, uh, you know, I couldn't be more excited that, that other folks find joy in it. Yeah, but you're you're a part of the tide, right? The tide that raises all ships. Because if you can bring attention and education to the consumer, you're making somebody happy. Trust me. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's... But thank you. Thank you for bringing up what you're drinking. Jason, what do you got? What are you sipping over there? I'm, I'm hiding in the bushes after hearing my talk about his club. This, he's, the, <laughs> he's got a plan. He's a man with a plan. I had that feeling early on. I don't know where it, where it went. Um, I'm still sipping on my Glenn Levitt. Um, I had some of this compass box myths and legends three, but um, it's a little peaty for me tonight. And this, the Glenn Levitt's coming in with a little bit more of an apricot and um, peachy note. That's 
working for me tonight. So, and it's yeah, a little Jason, bit more mellow. You and you and I are the only people that I know that can drink scotch in the hottest part of summer. I just, <laughs> it doesn't bother me at all. It doesn't bother me at all. Not a bit. Um, I probably won't touch an Octomore until it gets a little colder, but uh, I will a lighter whiskey for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's bourbon in the summer's tough. But, you know, add a, throw an ice cube in there, make a nice old-fashioned, and maybe not so bad. There you go. There you go. Bourbon slushy. Yeah. The bourbon slushy is a 302 or no joke. I am going to represent the club. I've got a <laughs> bottle here. I should go get a bottle of something. So I've got the Yellowstone pick that we did with Molloy's. I do have something part of part of that trip that I got to go with Jason and Steve. I even got the bottle signed by the colorful Stephen Fonte. Fonte was the best brand ambassador and true Kentucky gentleman that he is. Drew, what are you sipping on? I decided to grab a Great Lakes Tequila Club store special one thing that mike has done is worked with local liquor store owners and get us a little monthly discount and so there's a couple of different bottles every month i picked up the el tequileño and yeho and as you can tell by the bottle level i've enjoyed it (laughs) (laughs) and mike you have the legato what are you sipping on anything else there yeah, I also have the uh, so I also have a bottle of El Tequileño Reposado Rare, um, Ooh, and unlike yeah. the Añejo that you just mentioned, uh, Drew, the El Tequileño Reposado Rare is its own feature story uh, that that would be worthy of its own podcast. It's not really a Reposado. It, it uh, it's been aged for six years, which, um, as you guys know, anything over three years is an extra añejo. But it can't be called an extra añejo because it um, it's disqualified from that because it's aged in too large of an oak barrel, and oh. anything over a certain size cannot be called an extra añejo because it doesn't touch enough wood. And so uh, this is in a large barrel called a pipon. I forget how large it is, but it's massive. It's like a room-sized barrel, and it, it's it spent six years in there. So unlike the añejo that you have, Drew, that um, you know has been, I think, maybe two years or something like that, this one's six years, but it's even lighter in color because it just has less oak surface area to touch and get um, get the, the, the barrel influence from. So it's a really interesting one. And the, the reason I have it handy is uh, you mentioned the store special that we did. Um, so we do, we have all kinds of liquor store partnerships and discounts and so forth. Um, and one of them, we do monthly deals. And one of those deals was an El Tequileño pairing. It was, you know, either the Añejo or the uh, Reposado Rare for um, really good deal, uh, basically at liquor store cost, uh, which helps them drive traffic and it helps us deliver benefit to our club members. Absolutely. And yeah. Jason, uh, a comparable whiskey. It's sort of like, and I know what he likes here, so bear with me here. This is a Willet Purple Top, what he's working <laughs> up here. So this, these, are, these are rare and they're mm. delicious and they're expensive. You know, they, yeah. they but it's worth, it's worth every penny, you know, so I'm going to throw a little topic here because it's not fair to talk about additives in both spirits. Scotch does do an additive. It's allowable. It's the E150. It's the colorant, you know, because they want consistency among their, uh, their older scotches and it's allowable. And then you've got American bourbon, which has zero additives. So let's talk more about, Jason, I want your take on flavored whiskeys, or let's call them finished, finished whiskeys, secondary aging. And is that good or bad for the industry? And then, Mike, obviously, I'll let you talk about additives and the importance of education. And one question that I always throw to Drew is that, do we need those suckers out there continuing to buy the 818s and the Casamigos because if we had every single person on the planet going for the additive free stuff well then you know I'm I'm not going to get what I want on the shelf you know when <laughs> when uh <laughs> when it comes to, to barrel finished whiskeys 
it, I wasn't really a huge fan, but I understood the reason why, especially in Scotland, why they did it because a lot of those distilleries were, their reputations were built on age statements and you, you didn't buy a scotch if it wasn't, you know, 12 or 18 years old. You never thought about buying a five-year-old wee beastie. Um, that was just unheard of. But popularity became so overwhelming, especially from the Asian market, that they had to respond because when it comes to aging whiskey in Scotland, it nothing's fast there. It's a pretty temperate climate. It stays the same way. There's no real peaks and valleys as far as temperatures go. So you're not aging anything really quickly there. Um, so barrel finishing became a thing. You had a, you know, a minimum two year whiskey, and then you threw it in a oak barrel and then a sherry barrel or then a wine barrel or something. And you started sloshing it around and make it taste good. And it worked for a lot of people. I mean, it, it worked for Bunahaven. It worked for, for Brook Lottie. It, it worked, it started working for Bowmore and a lot of the Isla distilleries started doing it. So everyone else was like, well, Isla's doing it. So maybe we should be doing it. And now it's become old hat. Um, and it's a way to move product, but the problem is it's also driven demand. So now that 19 year old whiskey that I was hungry for 20 years ago is going to cost me 500 bucks and, you know, a good, a good Ardbeg aged whiskey is not cheap anymore. Thankfully the tariffs have finally relaxed, but it was, it, it's become a, you know, it's become a problem and you're seeing it with bourbon now too. Bourbons are, are doing different finishes barrel craft spirits is a big one for that oh and they're so good at it i mean they're the they're best. really really good at it and they're able to mask some um some imperfections i mean some of the younger distilleries can mask some imperfections with their whiskey by doing that and it's an easy way easy way to get product out and but are you a purist like is, is it bourbon still once it leaves that barrel and it goes into that red wine cask is it no. still bourbon? It doesn't bother me. It bothers me with it doesn't really bother me with scotch too. If it's good, it's good. You know what I mean? I, I don't mind it a whole lot. Um it just it just makes an aged whiskey that much harder to get. That's the biggest problem. And um especially with the big demand that you're seeing now that you know a 12-year-old Elijah Craig store pick is not gonna be commonplace anymore. You're not gonna you're not gonna have that luck. It's gonna be a six or an eight-year statement, probably, if you're lucky. Um, and then the other side of the pond, it's going to be harder and harder to get an affordable 18 year scotch, a 20 year scotch, you know, 30 year scotch is going to cost you, you know, five figures. Now it's just not, it's not feasible for the average consumer and the, and the collectors have really kind of in secondary markets have driven that too. That's a whole nother topic, but, um, it's okay. I think it's, I, I enjoy it if it's done right in certain distilleries, I have faith in that, like our or Glenmore and G as a whole, the whole conglomerate over there, they do a really good job with it. And, you know, Barrel Craft Spirits does a really good job with it. So if if the distillery has that um, track record, sure. All right, Mike, let's hear it. All right. All right, I'm ready for Additives, additives yeah, in tequila. There we go. It, it breaks down. Yeah, yeah. Let's get lathered up here. Um, <laughs> I, 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 have, I have strong opinions. <laughs> strong opinions on additives in tequila. Um, I, I'll say that there's there's basically two camps um, when it comes. Well, there's the folks who just don't care. But basically, when the, the discussion around additives usually falls among educated folks, uh, the folks who understand there's additives into two groups. One, drink what you like. Just know what you're drinking. And two, it's evil. And I, I will say you know, I'm I'm usually a pretty chill guy. And, you know, my, my disposition is more of the, I don't need to tell people what they need to be doing, you know, education, blah, blah, blah. I will tell you there's a difference here, though. Uh, let, let me tell you why it, it, it runs into evil when it comes to additives. The bad side of it is you can be covering up, additives can be covering up bad industrialized production process and unsustainable farming practices that ruin the industry for everybody. When additives are used to cover up a industrialized process and an unsustainable farming practice that ruins the industry, I have a problem with it. For example, do you know what acid thermal hydrolysis is? Well, we've discussed it. Most people it. don't. It's, it's terrible, right? You know, this is... This is the industrial answer to cooking underripe agave, you know, picking it young when it's not mature and it has no sugar, 
throwing it in a big machine, and then cooking it with hydrochloric acid. This is the same acid that is used to strip rust from steel. Like, is that really what you want cooking your agave? No. And it's certainly not what I want of picking, ruining the farm, the farms uh, and destroying the agricultural crops so that agave can't mature large enough to make good stuff. And so that's really the dark side of all of this. Um, there are legitimate semi-legitimate reasons for using additives. Um, you talked about some of them in, in, in whiskey and, and some of those same, you know, reasons exist in tequila, like, uh, smoothing out the profile between different barrels and batches and so forth. Um, you know, coloring is not the worst, uh, additive that you can, you can add to a tequila. So there's nuance here and I have some tequilas I know have coloring in them and that's the only additive they have. And that falls into the drink, what you like and like transparency and truth and labeling and all of that, that I can get comfortable with. But it's just used a little too often these days to, um, to feed the industrial machine and cover up bad practices. And that wasn't always the case. Like they didn't have these big industrial machines 20 years ago. They didn't have these problems. So when they used additives, then it was more for legitimate purposes, let's say, Whereas today, it, I really do feel like it has the potential to ruin the industry. That said, I'm not religious or dogmatic about uh, does everything have to be certified, additive-free, and all of these things. I'm a huge believer in Tequila Matchmaker. In fact, I'm a panel member of Tequila Matchmaker. I am a big believer, and I talk to those guys all the time, and I rely on their app. Uh, it's probably my most used app. Uh, but uh, I also know that not every tequila has had the chance to be tested yet, or, you know, may, may never go through the testing. There are many more additive free tequilas out there. And so I still have to train my palate and trust my palate on some of that stuff. But one thing I will tell you to scare the hell out of you, if you haven't heard it yet, um, Grover from uh, Tequila Matchmaker, the founder of Tequila Matchmaker, um, shared this out recently. The CRT, the regulatory body for tequila in Mexico, recently put out an article which they said 94% of all tequila by volume may contain additives. 94% of all mm -hmm. tequila by volume may contain additives. And I believe the intent was to normalize it. I think that's why they were coming out with such a big, bold number. That doesn't normalize it to me. That tells me we need more change. Does that more or less give them carte blanche now to do the big machine thing that they're trying to do to increase it. Yeah. That's, that's scary. I think the CRT, um, I, I, I think they, they, pro, they, uh, they serve a, a valuable role and they do a lot of good for, they have very high quality control testing. And I told you, you have to be there when you open the barrel and, you know, there's a lot of heavy handed stuff they do to make sure that quality is there. One of the things they do not do well is this additives thing. And they, unfortunately, you know, they're, they're funded proportionally by the, the tequila producers. Um, you know, it's essentially a tax that, that goes to fund them. And so, you know, Cuervo and, and 1800 and, and, you know, like uh, Hornitos and all of this, the salsa, uh, you know, all of these big brands that I don't, I don't care to drink. Um, they sell a lot of volume which means that they have a proportional funding of the regulate the regulator, which is a conflict of interest to me. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't mean it's going to change and I'm not, you know, like storming government or anything like that. Uh, it's just something that's good to know. And so when 94% of all tequila has additives, that to me says 94% of the funding of the regulator is coming from additives or additive producers. So what's really their incentive to shine a light on it and change it. Right. The 6%? Not really. So you need independent folks like Tequila Matchmaker and really just communities like us, uh, you know, folks who are passionate about it that, that try to spread the knowledge and share. And we try to vote with our wallet, just buy the right stuff. Yeah, and if there is any silver lining with that statistic, like you said, by volume, is that there are some craft producers, Jason, that they are making in one day, I'm sorry, in one year, what some of these big boys can produce in one day. Right. So 94% by volume, 
doesn't scare me because I I know that I'm still drinking that 6% because we're talking about millions and millions of cases as opposed to some of these crowd producers that are doing it right. But getting back, but getting back to the other question, Mike, do do we need those consumers? Can we, can we, can we get, can we get by with just (laughs) like if everyone switched to. So I understand, I understand the, the, the argument, Um, you know, like if you have, it's, it's all supply and demand, but I, and, and if the demand spikes for the good stuff, then, you, you know, you're either the price is going to go way up or you know, you're just not going to have enough supply and the price is going to go up and you're going to have a problem. You won't be able to get it. Um, but I would say those those large producers, if the demand changed on them, if the, if they lost the demand for their big industrial, terrible stuff. Um, or if the if the American palate uh, got a little bit more educated and evolved and, and kind of away from the sweeter, artificial sweeter stuff that they like, um, which is a very American thing, um, then, you know, they wouldn't sell. The, the, these are businesses. <laughs> they're just trying to meet consumer demand. That's all they're trying to do. So if we can change the demand curve, um in in a positive way, I am sure the supply curve will will um, be there to match it. Maybe not in year one, but you know, I mean, like there can be a lag. But I think over time, it would be healthier, be healthier and more sustainable from a farming perspective. Um, and we'd have more high quality choices. The small guys wouldn't get choked out as much. Maybe the small guys would become big. Wouldn't that be nice if if the guys who were doing it yeah. right actually became wealthy instead of uh you know the other way the other way around yeah i I don't want to see i don't want to see the big ones produce like a small little craft thing and still have it on their label i'd rather yes the camarenas uh of the world i will i will tell you this i'll try i don't know if i should uh mention the brand but there's one very uh, there's a small brand that makes very sweet additive filled tequila or at least in my opinion it has additives in it um, and it's, it's for the American market and you see it all over and you see it in Mexico a lot. And, um, I was talking with the master distiller, the distiller joined our club, um, in, uh, our, our Instagram side of things, the public version. And I told him, I'm like, I don't like your stuff. You know, I'm like, you seem like a cool guy. I don't like, it's too sweet. It's not my style. It's got additives. I'm not interested. He's like, I've got something coming for you. And he's one of the, it's one of the first brands I saw that was filled with sweet stuff aimed at the American palate that then came out with an additive free house brand and certified additive free. And it's just like, okay, wow. Someone who, a brand, a distillery that is known for being really at the far end of the sweet side is able to come out with an additive free, really traditional tequila if they can do it, they're seeing something that they want to try to meet, right? So it's just the tip of the iceberg, but I think there's potential for some of these brands. And certainly, you know, don't get me going on the whole celebrity thing, but that just goes back to <laughs> brand owners that... Yeah, no, I'm, we're not going to discuss it. No, there's no room yeah. for that on this. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, I like that. I like that because it's also maybe a little proof of concept of what you were talking about to answer Matt's question, which is if enough of us are demanding additive free, traditionally made tequila, this brand and, you know, I mean, you could feel free to share the brand name or maybe the additive free brand name. I mean, I don't think it matters because we drop brand names that we like and don't like all the time here, but it's awesome that they were able to shift. So like they, like the needles moved, like they moved the needle. Yeah. Yeah. And here they were. They were they able did. to shift and, their production. That's that's amazing. And I don't begrudge. I don't begrudge them. So the the brand, um, it, it's a family that make many brands, but one of them is Edictivo. Um, Edictivo is a very sweet tequila. I was thinking um, that was, I had that in my head, or either either that or Cava de uh, Cava de Oro. Same family. So okay, gotcha. um, Cava de Oro is made by the brother. Um, Edictivo is made by the other brother. Um, they're very very sweet. 
right? And um, I, I can't, I, I haven't tested it for additives. I don't know that it has additives. It doesn't meet my flavor profile. And I know what it's targeted for. It's targeted for folks who are like really sweet stuff. And if you go to Cancun, you know, like you're going to see it everywhere. It's not just mm-hmm. in the US, like you, you have, they're doing good business and they have like high quality production, stone brick ovens and, you know, copper, all, all the stuff that we geek out on, but then they make it sweet at the end. So they're not harvesting the agave young. They actually have their own, a single state agave. They're doing everything right, except, you know, like they're, they're tweaking it, uh, in my opinion, to make it, um, a bit sweeter at the end. Now they came out with a matatania. A matatania is a very traditional, some people it's too traditional for it's, you know, smoky and all of this stuff, but it's, Mm -hmm. um, it's a very traditional tequila line. And, um, I've had many conversations with the master distiller. He's a great guy and he's super passionate about that tequila. And you know what? It's really great. And, and just to see the, the differences there, the way I look at that distillery is they're just trying to meet their audience. They're actually making things really well. And then they're trying to fit the flavor profile to, you know, where they think the business is going and they've started to see there's some, you know, opportunity on the additive free side. And I hope that there's more brands that, that follow that they are not doing the industrialized evil stuff over there um, on the, with their sweeter tequilas. Um, They're they're trying to meet, honestly, they're trying to meet the bourbon drinkers. They're trying to meet the bourbon drinkers who, you know, want a, a, a aren't used to tequila and a more welcoming tequila is to come over into something that's aged and sweet. Jason, I saw your eyes perked up at the, at the smoky comment. The The next bottle share, I'll bring some mezcal bottles. I'll introduce you to the world of mezcal. I Please do. Might, yeah. Coming from a Isle of Scotch fellow brother, and I think you might transition quite nicely into uh, the world of mezcals. <laughs> I'll bring the four microphone podcast set up and we can sit down and drink some tequila. Oh, right. perfect. <sighs> is there anything else, uh, Mike, you wanted to mention some of the things that, that your club is doing from a philanthropy aspect. Yeah, I, we, uh, actually personally, uh, I've joined the board of a charity supporting the tequila industry from the ground up. It's, uh, called the tequila that cares foundation. And we actually haven't launched publicly yet. So that's a little bit of breaking news for you, Drew, uh, if you, mm-hmm. if you wanted it. So the tequila, heard, that it cares here, foundation, here, heard it here first folks. That's right. That's right. So the Tequila the Cares Foundation is um, a charitable uh, a charitable organization that supports and donates to causes in three categories: sustainability, um, healthcare, and education. Uh, of to, to basically bring positive change to the communities that support the tequila industry. Part of that is the distillery workers, the farmers, and um, in in rural communities in Mexico that don't have a very high income lifestyle, uh, but are making this great juice that we're charging, you know, that the uh, in the industry in the U.S. is charging quite a, a high high um, sales price for. And so we want to help them and support them through education and healthcare and sustainability, and then also the bartenders in the U.S. So we have a dual U.S. and Mexico um, giving arm. So we're going to be launching that shortly, but really the, um, the, the point that I would make is that it's, um, it, it goes back to community and, and kind of giving back. Uh, for me, this is a, a passion. I'm a, an enthusiast, a community builder, um, you know, a budding philanthropist. And, and it's really just about trying to, um, you know, support the industry that, that I enjoy so much. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. Jason, you said the next pick that you're working on? Or? It's a Sazerac rye that uh, I got a call from Garrett at Bourbon Belly. Um, it's our first um, foray with Burger Social in downtown Wheaton. We picked that back in March, February or March. Um, Lakota Hernandez and I went and picked it with uh, Garrett and one of his, a couple of his friends that worked there, one of the bartenders that works at uh, Burger Social, and then uh, one of his buddies and if you're not a fan of rye, which a lot of people aren't in the whiskey club, it just doesn't taste anything like the Sazerac off the shelf. It's very sweet. I mean, not too sweet, but it's got it's not doesn't have that rye bite that a lot of people are turned off by. But yeah, that's coming in supposedly September, <laughs> September or October. Who knows? Um, it just takes a long time 
But yeah, that's the only thing. We may be doing something with the Sycamore Whiskey Club. Um, Paul Fix keeps talking to me about um, doing a joint pick with uh, him and I and be getting Malloy's involved to see what we can come up with. Chicago weather is delicate, right? Because having an event in the hottest part of summer and the coldest part of winter is a challenge. But if we could capture those those great spring, you know, Saturday nights or a or a, a Friday night in the fall, you know, if we're not all going to a football game, but um, you know, it, <laughs> That's it's, it. it's it's great to to meet other members, you know, it's it's great to to get to know a few other whiskey fans to it's it's reassuring that i'm i'm not the only person out there that thinks of this stuff the way i do correct <laughs> that it's not completely unhealthy the way that we approach this right so correct. Have some like-minded fans of of the spirit it's always nice to get together and and sit with those people and mike i i love the the suerte gathering that that you had and uh, even opening up your home to to the to the people that came and you know that was a, a fantastic event, and I, I had never had Suerte up until that point, so it was a great, a great experience. Yeah, it was great. Both of you guys, uh, Matt and Drew, have been to events uh, that we've had. So uh, Matt, the small one, small Suerte tasting that we had uh, in my house. You know, I mean, to think a couple of years ago about inviting a bunch of people from uh, essentially social media to your home is, um, you know, might not have been the most comfortable thing. But I really do feel like we've you know, we've built a, a comfortable enough community to do cool stuff like that. And, and Drew, you know, you came recently to our uh, the event we did in, in Chicago where we tasted uh, Cascanes, Tau, and Don Vicente, um, all new new barrelings or new new uh, new releases from new distilleries and things like that. So mm-hmm. that was a that was a pretty cool event too. So thanks, guys, for um, thank you both for engaging in the communities that we've. Um, you know, that we've created as well. It's really cool to have your participation. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm excited for that Don Vicente to show up on the shelves. That was delicious. And yeah. Jason, man, I can't stop talking about that Ezra Brooks <laughs> bottle that you guys put out like think. last Christmas or something. <laughs> I can't remember when it came out. That that was amazing. We got lucky with that one, man. The the Sos editions really do knock it out of the park more so than the cask strengths, but that one was really good. I, I missed that one a lot. Yeah. yeah if you I ever find you. a spare bottle just kind of hanging around the you know <laughs> cabinet that you didn't know, I'm just saying you've got to take her for that Ezra. And this this rye pick that you have, is that is that spoken for? Or is that still open? Is there gonna be some on the store shelves? No, that one's through the that one's gonna be through the restaurant. So I'll let you know when it comes in. And I'll sneak you on the list because we kind of drew a hard line at 140 bottles and they all um, they all went through. And then um, but we I think Garrett's anticipating close to 200 bottles of that. So we'll have plenty. So I'll get you on the list. Excellent. Excellent. Man, I can tell you it's only like 40 something bucks. It's not even that expensive. Oh, amazing. Matt can tell you I fell in love with Rise before I could really enjoy a bourbon. That was, I really loved that spiciness and the, you know, as we say, sticking your head in the bag of rye bread. Mm-hmm. You know, I love it. I love the rice. All right. I'm going to do that right now while we're talking about it. I'm in. So, Jason, where do we find the Wheaton Whiskey Club on the web, on the socials? How do we follow? How do we engage? <laughs> Well, we're on the web. It's I think theweetonwhiskeyclub.com. And then we're I'm more active on Facebook and it's just the Wheaton Whiskey Club on Facebook. Um and then uh the Big Red Dram on Instagram. I kind of plug the club a little bit through that, but lately it's just been videos of my kid playing baseball. <laughs> so unfortunately it's just been that. Um but yeah, Facebook is predominantly where we're at. And, and Mike, to piggyback on what you were saying earlier about social media, it's funny when you get, you know, that toxicity of how Facebook can be. And then you start getting into clubs and you start following distilleries. And next thing you know, your newsfeed is nothing but all these bottles of whiskey you want to buy. And you lose all the politics. So you're trading, you know, a vice versus politics, which I'll take the vice. It's at least you can kind of resist going out and buying the next bottle, but it does take away a lot of the negativity. Um, it's, a, it's a perfect trade. I think that's a that's a great upgrade. <laughs> it is sure. a great upgrade. 
I haven't I haven't loved Facebook more than I have in years. I love my Facebook <laughs> yeah. feed. It's just tequila whiskey. Yeah, right. Oh, I, I love it. I am now following so many tequila makers and tequila pages that my reels and the ads are coming up in Spanish. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you guys missed the mark. No yeah. clue. <laughs> yeah, it is nice to, to avoid all that nonsense. That's for sure. <laughs> That's great. That's for and, sure. And Mike, what about you? How do we find the Great Lakes Tequila info? That's pretty easy. I mean, you can find us a lot of different places. You can just Google it. But we're uh, if you're in Chicagoland, the greater Chicagoland area, you should look us up on Facebook for our private group. Um, that's really where we do all of the cool local stuff. On Instagram, so uh, on Instagram, we're at Great Lakes Tequila. Um, that's our non-Chicago. If you're outside of Chicago, make sure to follow us there. Um, and then we've got um, a, a pretty, uh, I guess it would be our hub is, is the website that connects all of those things. So if you ever get lost, you can go to our hub, which is greatlakestequilaclub.com. And that's where we have our um, list of local hotspots, like the liquor stores and the bars that we think are great for tequila. It's where we have um, our merchandise uh, with, you know, our great club logo with the the footprint of the Great Lakes imprinted on a Mexican sugar skull. Um, and, and it really just serves as kind of like a launching point for the Facebook group, the Instagram page, and our merch and network. That's great. Excellent. What do you think, Matt? That about wrap her up? I think so. Yeah, I think we can tie a bow on this. Thank you guys so much. And um, we want to encourage all of our listeners to find Great Lakes Tequila Club and the Wheaton Whiskey Club on all of the socials out there and do your best to educate yourself. Like Mike said, it's good to be educated. It's good to know what you're drinking and what you're buying. Good to be libated. It's good to be libated. (laughs) Yes. Along with that educated. And so we want to ask all of our listeners to like and follow and subscribe. Check out our Facebook group, and Instagram site at Whiskey Tequila Fridays podcast. We want to thank Joby at Forsha Creek for our music, as always. And we ask that you drink responsibly. And if you like drinking whiskey and you like drinking tequila, then it's always a Friday. Happy Friday, Drew. Happy Friday, Matt. We appreciate y'all hanging. And now it's time to go. Come on back for more whiskey to keep a Friday show. Yeah, we'll yeah. see. We'll see, Jason. If you know they, this goes on the uh, lost files, um, <laughs> the lost files. I've heard about oh, the lost, the ep- lost episodes oh, uh, before, man. so we'll, we'll see. I don't know what happened. All of Jason's comments are gone.